Dear brother, in Exodus 19, it is written that God beckoned Moses to ascend to the summit of Mount Sinai, where the commandments were given to him and his people. The allegorical interpretation of this story may be understood thus. The sacred mountain of Sinai represents a high place of consciousness, far above the level of thought and emotion, which is the common lot of humanity. Moses, whose name I understand to mean drawing out, had led his people out of the realm of instinctive and emotional thought that Egypt represents. Thus Moses symbolizes the act of drawing the soul's awareness out of the limited consciousness of the body into a higher state of awareness, and by ascending the sacred mountain of Sinai is led into the presence of the divine. In this elevated state, the soul is inspired to act according to a higher law represented by the Ten Commandments. At one level, the commandments constitute a moral system that appears to be punitive and absolute. On another level, they are universal laws which must be understood by humanity if it is to take the next step in its evolution. Considered as such, the Ten Commandments are far more benign than we usually give them credit for. They express the divine principles of love, compassion and justice, and by these principles all life is justified. It is not God's will that all creatures, humanity included, should live for all time in slavery to fixed patterns of behaviour. It is taught that all life will eventually evolve into conscious unity with the divine Godhead that created it. Considering then the Ten Commandments as a divine revelation, we can meditate upon them knowing that our efforts will be more than amply rewarded. The first commandment is, I am the Lord thy God, you shall have no other gods before me. It establishes the principle of one God, a universal principle which demands of the soul that it should recognize that God is one, both in unity and diversity. To understand that God is one, and to recognize that this one God created the universe, is to realize that nothing can exist outside of God, and that all life proceeds from God, is dependent upon God, and ultimately returns to God, which means everything, including good and evil, however we perceive them, was created by God. See Isaiah 45, verse 1 to 7. If God be omnipresent and omniscient, eternal, infinite and all-seeing, then this must be so. If we believe that God created no evil, we must either change our definition of God or our definition of good and evil, or to accept more than one absolute is to fall foul of the ancient delusion of dualism, which holds that there exists two fundamental principles by which all life is affected, an absolute good and an absolute evil, two warring forces forever opposed, the kingdom of one being heaven and the kingdom of the other being earth, the soul being both the battleground and the prize. Before the advent of monotheistic religion, people believed in many different deities, whose supremacy was based upon power. From time to time, these deities were superseded by more powerful gods. Today, such gods are more familiar to people as science, capital, profit, sovereignty, to name but a few, and which now stand paramount in the temple of such souls, 
wherein all true sense of the divine has been eradicated. The first commandment is as relevant today as it was in Moses' time. It embodies a wisdom which teaches that there is one absolute unity whose nature is life itself. All creatures are dependent upon it and for all time, for they are but expressions of it. This central principle of life, light and love generates health and well-being, both in the individual and the community. And the culture which holds to this commandment mines a rich seam of wisdom that enables it to deal with the forces of nature intelligently. For such a culture recognizes the divine as the source of all life out of which emanates all understanding, wisdom, compassion, justice and harmony, totally free from caprice, petulance, vanity and jealousy. In short, free from all of the failings of a god made in man's image. Upon this solid foundation, the principles of freedom, love and tolerance may prevail. Science will flourish and culture evolve because the intellectual matrix of humankind is harmoniously integrated with the spiritual life. Underlying the first commandment, then, is the teaching that the divine Godhead is at one with all creation, life eternal partaking in all life, that the transient nature of this world is not the be-all and end of all. Out of the eternal we sprang, and back into it we will go, life out of the very heart of God, generated out of divine love, whose ultimate purpose is full of love. What then should we fear in this veil of tears? The second commandment is, You shall not make for yourself a graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, or serve them. The context of this commandment is in the final line, You shall not bow down to them, or serve them. For the making of images for worship is fundamentally the practice of idolatry. We must bear in mind that the Jewish people had just left Egypt, a country in which the making of images and imbuing them with a psychic or spiritual force, which were then worshipped, was commonplace. This commandment teaches humankind that forms and images have nothing in them or about them that deserves the respect due only to the Godhead. We must remember that the human mind is inclined to be somewhat capricious and is therefore not to be completely trusted, especially concerning spiritual things. Even today, many people give veneration to images and statues, believing them to be inhabited by gods and spirits. Now think about this. In first world countries, millions of people daily follow the activities of make-believe communities who exist only on the television and give what can only be called religious attention to such icons as the motor car, body worship, sport, money and numerous other ephemeral treasures. Such bowing and serving of forms and images contribute to the decadence of the soul and consequently to the degeneration of civilization. To those with questionable motives, this may seem perfectly acceptable, but it must be remembered that the progress of life is one of unfolding development, evolution, and that its direction is one way, towards God. In this there is life, yes, life eternal at that. Alternatively, there is decadence, 
a grosser self-indulgence in the things of the senses, which inevitably leads to the corrosion of the will to evolve and a movement away from the divine. There's nothing wrong with nature's gifts, but one should bear in mind that when more importance is given to things of the world than is given to the cultivation of spiritual knowledge, then the soul is in danger of atrophy and is in essence practicing idolatry. There are two aspects worthy of consideration in the contemplation of the second commandment. Firstly, that of believing images or forms can be imbued with life, especially life of a divine or supernatural nature, and the veneration of them. This is no easy matter to understand, because it is possible for such objects to be charged with what may appear to be supernatural powers, and such magical objects do indeed exist. It is further possible for objects to be spiritually charged or consecrated. Such objects are plentiful, yet though both may be deserving of respect for different reasons, neither deserve to be venerated. The book of Exodus contains detailed instructions concerning the making of forms such as the ark, the altar, and vestments, etc. So it's not so much the making of images which is forbidden, but the undue respect and virtue that is so often accorded to them. The second aspect concerns the soul, which is subject to the influences of the instinctive nature and to the world of the senses. The objects of the senses are what binds the soul to the world, a cunning snare which holds the soul trapped like the proverbial monkey with its hand in the sweet jar, a prisoner of its own desire. The things we perceive via the senses are not wrong, or evil, they are neither good nor bad, except we make them so. Our instinctive nature demands of us that we survive and procreate. Consequently, the things of this world which help us to attain these objectives are very significant and dominate much of our time and thought. But the soul is of divine origin, and its attachment to the things of the earth must inevitably come to an end, as it gravitates towards its spiritual goal. The creation of base mental images which inflate our self-esteem is on its own level a form of idolatry. Ambition, when taken too far, becomes avarice. And appetite, when exercised beyond basic needs, whether it be for food, a drink or sex, becomes gluttony and lust. Now the wise have always known that humility, continence and prudence are essential qualities to be developed if the fruits of our labours are to be kept in perspective. Otherwise, they become obsessive, and then we are in danger of overstepping the mark by giving them the attention and reverence due only to God. Thus, when we create such images and serve them, we break the second commandment. Considering the two aspects together, we can recognize that in this commandment we have been given a key for our spiritual development. It is taught in the Gospel that Christ is the light that lighteth the life of every man that cometh into the world, from which we can understand that there is a divine element within us all, and it is the purpose of our life to be at one with this divine reality. The teachings given by Christ are very simple. Love the Lord thy God with all thy soul, with all thy heart, and with all thy strength, and love thy neighbour as thyself. This is the most fundamental of teachings, 
for in loving God we respect ourselves in due proportion. An enigmatic statement, but nonetheless true. The consequence of this is that we must develop respect for life in all its forms. For only then can we learn to see the divine in all things, the essence, not the form, and this we can worship gladly, without having recourse to any kind of fetishism. The third commandment is, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The begging question is, what is the name of the Lord your God? The answer is to be found in any Hebrew English Bible. The relevant text reads, you shall not take the name of Jehovah your God in vain. See Exodus 20 verse 7. The next question that arises is why? Before this question can be properly answered, it should be understood that the commandment does not forbid the use of the name of God, but the improper use of it. Vain, according to the Oxford Dictionary, means trivial, conceited, and to use for no real purpose. Therefore, using a person's name in vain is to use it trivially, in a conceited manner, without respect, consideration, or valid purpose. This commandment clearly forbids anyone from improperly using the name of God, Jehovah, in vain. The English interpretation of the name Jehovah is Lord, which is insufficient for a proper understanding of its deeply profound meaning. Thus it is, I think, that because we have a sanitized rendition of a great mystery, we are incapable of truly understanding the meaning of this commandment. The Gospel of John commences thus, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. This statement refers to Christ, who as the Word, or Logos, is the manifest or outward expression of the unknowable Godhead. Thus to use the name of God is to call upon the manifest power of God, and to call upon the name of God for trivial matters is to risk a divine reprimand. There are those who by their disbelief close their minds to the existence of the power of the divine. The consequence of such an attitude is a complete lack of respect for the creator and the forces of nature which are nothing less than expressions of divinity. Such a disrespectful attitude, especially when applied to the name of God, is an unnatural act which must ultimately lead to ill health, both physical and spiritual. For the aware soul, such an attitude is impossible. For where there is respect for the originator of life, there naturally follows an ever-growing consciousness and respect for life itself. Such a positive attitude is distinctly advantageous because the Logos becomes a means of revelation and illumination rather than a focal point of mockery and derision. The wisdom of this commandment is concerned with love and propriety. The love of the divine is the love of life and the respectful treatment of it. As we learn to see the divine in all things, it must inevitably follow that we must also learn to love and respect life in all its diversity. And more importantly, to see something of the divine within ourselves. Thus, in treating our fellow creatures with respect, we take the first steps towards unity with the divine light of life within ourselves which is what God intended of humanity when the creatures of the earth were given over to our care and protection, that is, 
to learn the power of love in action, both in giving and receiving. There are souls who, through persistent hard work, have learnt important lessons concerning love and the nobility of life. To such people, a deeper understanding of the divine name is given, for they have developed sufficient wisdom not to be tempted into using the name inappropriately. For when such people call upon the name of the Lord, a response is given. Many wonderful things have been accomplished by people, like the Patriot, in defence of his or her country, or ardent lovers in defence of their beloved, or by caring parents on behalf of their children. But the name of the Lord transcends such activities. Sacred are the virtues of human nature, but more sacred by far is the name of the Lord. Only those who have learnt the nature of love in all its aspects can truly love God. Which is not to say that human emotions are inferior to that experienced by an elevated few. It is rather a question of degree, for when love has reached its potential on the field of human endeavour, it takes a quantum leap into another realm, where the love of God becomes greater than the love of the things of the world. The fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. For six days thou shalt labour, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Every civilization has its Sabbath, a day when the soul turns away from its struggle for survival, here upon earth, and turns instead to contemplate spiritual things. Israel has its Sabbath on a Saturday, and Islam has its Sabbath on a Friday. Christianity established its Sabbath on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Wise leaders of industry have long understood that incessant labour leads to a decline in both the quality and productivity of work. Thus time for rest and recreation is given to all who labour to ensure high standards of quality and reliable production. Too much work invariably generates high levels of stress and illness. Thus rest is important for maintaining a balanced life. However, the maxim man cannot live by bread alone is a recognition that the products and rewards of this world are insufficient for a healthy and balanced life. There's more to life than merely satisfying bodily needs. Humanity is more than mere flesh and blood, more than thought and feeling. It has a spiritual dimension that also requires attention. This commandment contains a wisdom which relates to the spiritual dimension and its needs. Basic questions such as who am I? From whence do I come? From where do I go? What is the meaning and purpose of life? Are questions that demand answers that the world cannot satisfy. For the answers that the world can provide do not fulfill the soul's inner need to know. The nature of the mind being what it is gains little from superficial or cursory observation. Time is required. Prime time and prime energy without interruption or disturbance, for the contemplation and understanding of spiritual things. Only then do answers evolve which satisfy the soul's inner requirements. If we can give prime time to the things of the world, things which are of little permanent value, how much more then can we give to that which is truly essential and of lasting value? This commandment ordains that we should give one day each week to the affairs of the soul. In this it outlines a principle of regularly devoting prime time and energy to our spiritual life. 
Most people are weighed down with the struggle of existence. Therefore, they are recommended to give only a little of their time to the affairs of the spirit. But every civilization produces its holy men and women who devote much more of their time to such things. People are not expected to spend the whole of their working day in prayer and meditation. There is work plenty to be done in the world, but some prime time should be set aside. The minimum expected, according to divine ordinance, is one day's prime time each week without disturbance. Those who can give more should do so. It has also been said that too much transcendental activity leads to a form of intoxication, which is unhealthy, often leading the individual into states of obsession and outlandish fantasies. In this, there is a great deal of truth, undoubtedly. But it is equally true to say that too much involvement with materialism also leads to obsession and outlandish fantasies concerning the things of the world. It goes without saying that a fine balance can indeed should be maintained between both worlds. Let your head be in the clouds or keep your feet firmly on the ground. Divine Providence, as with wisdom, pointed out quite clearly that in our passion for life's experience, we should not forget our true nature, for our true nature and heritage is not revealed by our involvement with the things of the world, as we might think. Rather, it is by turning to the divine that the truth is revealed. Thus, we are wisely guided by this commandment to contemplate the divine, for only the divine can give the answers we seek. The fifth commandment is honour thy father and thy mother, that thy days might be long in the land which the Lord thy God gives thee. The family unit is the basis of human society. So deep is the sense of family ingrained into human consciousness that no civilization has been able to exist without it. The family unit, consisting of parents and children, extend to include grandparents and relatives. The nature of the interrelationships between the members of the family determine their quality of life experience. This conditioning has profound implications for society, consisting as it does of many families. The sum of the parts determining the nature of the whole. Therefore, harmonious family life indicates well-adjusted family members and by extension contributes towards a well-adjusted society, which creates the ideal environment for healthy family development and so the cycle evolves. Just as society requires sound management to administer its needs, so too does a family. The difference between them is in the fact that governments are elected, whereas the very nature of the family dictates that the parents govern. Their union results in children who need to be cared for. Inspired by love for each other, parents take upon themselves the long office of nurturing and educating their offspring until such a time arises that they can look after themselves. Thus we are commanded to venerate our mother and father. It is a sad fact that some parents leave a lot to be desired in the way they meet their chosen obligation. But this does not detract from the essential proposition of honouring them. It must be acknowledged that most parents set out in their administration of a family with good intentions. We should then recognize the role of the parent in principle rather than looking with a cynical eye 
and basing our judgments upon specific examples. From the first moment of birth, we are conditioned by our family environment, wherein important psychological modifications are made in the formative years of infancy. None are more significant than the mother and father figures created during this period, which influence our actions at very deep levels for the durations of life. The attitudes we develop towards them figure largely in shaping our character. Consequently, this commandment demands of us that we learn to respect our parents because any attitude we foster towards them is reflected upon the corresponding archetypes existing within us. Indeed, the structure of the cosmos and of the human psyche consists of, among other things, two creative principles, the masculine and the feminine. Out of the relationship between them evolves the entire creation. On a cosmic scale, we might think of creation in terms of a chemistry between divine archetypes. But on a human scale, it is Adam and Eve who represent the masculine and feminine principles which are reflected in everyone. If each individual is to develop in a wholesome manner, then the masculine and feminine components of our being must be recognized and respected. These principles have their most powerful expression in the role of mother and father. An imbalanced or negative attitude towards either creates a situation wherein growth and development are impaired and or distorted. The family is, after all, a schoolroom, wherein the basic lessons concerning the nature of the masculine and feminine can and indeed must be learned. Parents are brought together by the love they have for one another. This love is naturally extended to their offspring. The combined virtues of the parents stimulate corresponding development in their young, thus the children learn to recognize the different qualities of their parents. The love given to one's parents is in reality love given to oneself, and herein is the underlying wisdom of this commandment. If we have no respect for our parents, then self-respect is distorted along with our attitudes to others. A society with a majority of members with such an attitude quickly degenerates and does not survive long. Hence the second part of this commandment, that your days might be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. Love is the true expression of our parents, and if we were to truly understand how such love drew them together, then we would understand how the same unqualified love draws together the masculine and feminine parts of our psyche. The archetypal father and mother are the principal expressions of the divine Godhead and generate through their activities the whole of creation through the positive and negative components of which they consist. 